Black Cats Run podcast. I'm Tristan Black Ingersoll, and this is Black Cats Run. Today's episode, Who's On First? We talk about the concept of queuing, what indicators, benchmarks, or cues do we choose to respond to when we're trying to determine how to train, which of these cues are good, which of these cues are maybe not as good, how can changing our orientation around these cues improve performance, and how can we identify what cues we want to be using, and if we don't currently use the right cues, how can we learn how to incorporate this concept to improve the effectiveness of the time we spend trying to get better at all kinds of different endurance sports and other physical conditioning activities. Let's get into today's episode. This summer, I have been running a kind of experiment, and I didn't necessarily set out to do this, but I've started to recognize that the data that I have collected here is starting to show a relationship, and it's led to me to form a hypothesis. And my hypothesis is that uh, most people struggle to improve as athletes, not because of a lack of physical ability, a lack of talent, or a lack of willpower. But I think that the difficulty to improve is because of a lack of understanding of how it should feel to train. And um, the Abbott and Costello skit, who's on first, that kind of confusion, I think, is what's going on here, where we can't seem to get past some basic um, obstacles of language and description that would help us understand what's really going on when we're trying to train and trying to get better um, at different endurance sports. And I think, to be fair, probably other kinds of uh, physical activity that requires some sort of a physical conditioning routine. Um, We just don't know how it should feel, and we don't really even know how to talk about that. So we end up sort of in these circular, go-nowhere conversations, and then it feels so complex that we sort of give up because we assume that it's complex because it's inaccessible to us, and then we resort to these cheaper methods. And I think this is kind of like the concept of getting frustrated if you're learning how to tie a knot for your shoelaces. And then saying, okay, well, I I guess I need to use Velcro. And um, maybe not a perfect analogy because I guess there's really nothing wrong with using Velcro on your shoes per se. But what I mean by this is to emphasize more so the fact that, you know, learning to tie a knot for your shoes is something that most people do without thinking. It's a mindless uh, thing, right? But there was a point in your life when that was complicated, that was inaccessible knowledge. Right? And we make a complicated thing simple by mastering it. We don't make a complicated thing simple by ignoring it. So, you know, 
if we extend this to the hypothesis, um, we don't know how it should feel to train because nobody's teaching us how it should be done. And I think that maybe, you know, treads a little bit into hyperbole because I, I know there are people in sport who do try to talk about this, but it's not a standard practice. Um, and I think one of the reasons it's not a standard practice, and I want to acknowledge this initially because I don't want to necessarily focus on it throughout the rest of the episode, but I do want to acknowledge this because I think it's really prevalent, um, is the market, okay? The fitness market for conditioning, training, especially for endurance sports, um, is really organized around a like knowledge keepers um, and then you know the knowledge lists. Um, the people who don't know. And the pattern or the structure seems to be that we, you know, the masses, the athletes are dependent on the few, you know, these enlightened coaches and that the coaches can't tell us how to tie our shoes, right? But they can give us the Velcro or they can, you know, tie our shoes for us. And this relationship of the coach as the brain and the athlete as the will and something that goes on. And there's this sense that if you want to progress, you need to get a coach. And I don't think that's true. I think if you want to progress, you need to do the training that allows you to progress. And um, a person who is knowledgeable can give you information that can allow you to access that training. Um, but if all that person can do is say, here's a schedule here's these paces, upload them to your watch. I'm putting them on training peaks. They synchronize to your Garmin. And then you go out and you stare at your bike computer and you do exactly what it says. I don't think that's effective. Now, a footnote to this is I think it's boring um, and you know not rewarding and not engaging in the long term to have to train like that. But I'm not, you know, especially true with cycling where you tend to spend longer periods of time in any given session training. Um, it's by nature of the sport, I'm not necessarily looking to look at the dystopian aspects of cycling training. To be completely honest, you know, I feel a lot of people in cycling complain about the training uh, culture of cycling for the wrong reasons, that there are complaints to be made, but that people don't really even understand it well enough to complain about it, right? Like you can't say what you think is bad about the not that you tie if you can't even tie the knot. You don't even know the knot enough um, to like critique it, right? But people are doing that and they're sort of imitating the complaints of others because they're like, oh, this is what we do is we complain about this and you know, I'm maybe not happy or satisfied and I don't know why and so I'm going to complain. Um, and you know, complaining isn't bad, but um, if we're directing our attention towards things that are irrelevant, then that's bad because it's a waste of time. It's not productive. It's not going to solve the problem. It might be cathartic and there's value to catharsis, but there's also value to solving problems. So I think that we start to see, you know, that there's some complexity to this, right? The market place of training, right? Selling, uh, training, you know, creating media that people consume around sports culture, um, you know, and motivates um, I think maintaining this this confusion, right? Because people will pay money to you to figure this stuff out for them because they don't they can't and they don't believe it's necessarily possible for them to do that. And I don't think that's true. I think it's it's pretty straightforward. 
um, if you're interested and if you believe it, it's possible you can acquire the knowledge. Just have to be patient. You don't learn everything the very first time you do it, just like tying a knot. And the evidence here that's led me to this hypothesis that, you know, really we don't know how hard to train um, has come in the form of uh, a running test that I've done with a lactate meter. And I've done this uh, now with myself and, you know, as of this podcast recording to other people. And I, this is not some sort of a formal study, but I'm recognizing a trend here and I'm sharing you know, on today's episode that I feel confident that if I continued this data exploration with a wider and wider sampling of people, you know, I would, you know, tend to see this relationship. I'm, and, and qualifier is, you know, on the podcast that I'm not trying to sort of um, shortchange um, these discussions or these observations by not pro- uh, providing ample data. I mean, I think the reality, reality is, is that unfortunately, you know, that one of the negatives due to the um, kind of limitations of to the extent to which people want to engage with these kinds of ideas is that it limits my ability to sort of collect real world data. So um, to some extent, I'm kind of relying on conjecture, but you can certainly go and, and you can apply this kind of concept for yourself and, and, and test this out and see if this is true. If you have a lactate meter, you can get them for 280 to $310, uh, which is objectively not much money in the scope of the amount of money that we spend on sports stuff. Um, but people don't see a lactate meter as valuable. So, hey, that's really expensive, right? But people, you can get more performance out of a lactate meter than you can get out of six pairs of alpha flies. So, and you do the monetary comparison on that front. So here's the data, right? Let's get into the data. So the basic test was... Um, going to a track, uh, running track, and running for 10-minute intervals, um, and each interval at a faster pace, and trying to do this off of, you know, each interval is a study effort by trying to do it off of perceived exertion. And this isn't trying to follow a ramp protocol. I've talked about doing ramp tests, um, you know, at three-minute intervals on Wahoo Kicker or some other stationary trainer for the bike before. This is a different process. So, and you could probably, you know, question this process, but I think that um, if anything, this data would be more evident um, if you're able to follow a, a more specific uh, approach. And what got me interested in this is that, you know, I really hadn't done uh, lactate stuff uh, with running. I just hadn't really, you know, thought, I mean, I thought about it, aware of it, but I hadn't really bothered to apply it. But you know, I was feeling like, you know, my running, I just don't really feel like I'm getting fitter. I don't really feel like I'm progressing right now, you know, and it was getting pretty hot out at this point, you know, going into the beginning of July. And uh, I was like, well, maybe, maybe I should check and see if I'm running too hard. And I had also pulled this muscle or torn this muscle in my shoulder and pec Um, so I was having a hard time breathing. So I was also wondering, like, can I even run fast enough to, you know, be at threshold, you know, or was, was that going to be hampered? Right. You know, what is it, if it's not possible to do it, then that would inform some of my thought process about how I wanted to be training and approaching my training. So, you know, all I did here is I did 10 minutes 
And uh, in the instance of the first test, um, and I've posted uh, this data on the Instagram page recently at Black Cats Run. So if you want a visual, you can check that out. But I did this on, uh, you know, also looking at watts on a stride pod. But basically, the first 10 minutes, I jogged very slowly, very easily, you know, so 940 pace or something. And then the second 10 minutes, I uh, ran what I felt was a steady effort, you know, not a workout effort, but if I was going out and just doing a regular sort of that sort of generic training time that people like don't know what to call it. And I've started to see people call it like a base run. Um, But the reality is it's an aerobic training session is really what it should be called. But people have, we have this perception, right? That there's like, quote unquote, active recovery, or there's like workout intensity. And then people think there's this stuff that you do, but like, what is it? It's not really uh, important. And um, Peter Coe said that, you know, you should be able to explain the reason for everything you do. And that doesn't mean that there isn't a reason for things like this, but a lot of us, if we don't know why we're doing it, we're not going to be able to do it correctly. And so then, right, I ran that generic effort, right? More than easy, less than what a workout would be. And I said, okay, now I run 10 minutes at threshold. And um, I didn't, you know, I started and then I maintained that even pace, but I didn't prescribe a pace to myself initially. So, you know, for me, that was like 838 pace and then 742 pace and then 657 pace. And at uh, 838 pace, I was about 0.8 to 1 millimoles. At um, 742 pace, I was at about 1.8 millimoles. And then at 657 pace, which is the intensity that I thought should be my threshold, I was at uh, 5.4 millimoles. And so my threshold should, I should be at, at maximum 2.8 millimole. And once I've started accumulating, my accumulation of lactate and the blood is over 1.8. I don't know if I said 2.8. I mean to say 1.8 millimoles. Once it's over 1.8, now I'm over that line. Okay. So, but my self-selected effort had me at 5.4 millimoles. Okay. Which is way out of bounds. Um, you know, actually even people who have the inaccurate interpretation of, Oh, like four millimoles, like generically, wherever you are at four millimoles, that's a threshold. So we've discussed that in other episodes this year that that's false. But even if that was true, my effort was still way too hard for that. You know, and I'm somebody who my um, threshold value is below two. So, you know, I come in below that average, um, that population average of about two millimoles. So for me to get up to four is even more of a jump than in the sort of, you know, generic model athlete, you know, having a steady state at two millimoles. And so what I realized, obviously, from doing this was that I was self-selecting the wrong intensity. And so then using my stride pod, you know, I had had changed my effort. And, um, you know, I've shown in this same post, you know, the, the progression that I got over the course of a month. And, you know, I think the progression was pretty good. Happy with that. 
All right. And that happens because I'm self-selecting the right intensity. And, you know, I improved my threat, my actual threshold by about 30 seconds a mile. So that went from about, um, about eight minute pace to about 7.30 pace, you know? So, and that was about, you know, 15 to 20 watts, 20, 15 to 25 watts improvement. So you want to measure it in terms of uh, the stride pod. So, okay, right? Is this true, right? Am I the only person who has this problem? Or uh, are, is it possible that other people also don't know how to identify this? So a uh, friend of mine towards the end of some point in July, later in July, um, we went out, did the same thing, 10 minutes easy, 10 minutes at what she felt her steady effort was, um, and then 10 minutes at threshold. And so for the first two, she was around one, then around 1.5, and then threshold, she came in at about four and a half millimoles, okay? Way over. And then uh, I've done it a third time, another friend of mine, uh, we went out, same thing. We did 10 minutes, um, self-selected, and that was at one millimole. Then the next 10 minutes, she was again at one millimole. And then the next 10 minutes, you know, threshold. And I ran with her and, you know, it was clear to me based on the sort of cue, and this is another, the focus of, uh, the podcast is how do you identify this stuff? It was clear that she was going to be totally over that steady state because her breathing was very pronounced. And so, you know, she finished and she said, well, you know, I, I felt good. I felt like I could do that for a while. And this is as we're waiting for the thing and then it, to count down or, you know, calculate, right? And it has the countdown on the screen. Um, and then it says 3.8. And I said, so that's way over your threshold. So I said, okay, so let's do another 10 minutes and said, so, okay, so, so that 10 minutes was at 640 pace. I said, let's try to run maybe 720, 710 pace. And so we did that for 10 minutes and then we tested it. And then, then again, it was about one millimole. And I said, so what this is demonstrating, what this is showing here is that like your sense of what threshold should be is way too high, right? And so unless you really orient yourself and think about what that should feel like, you're not going to be able to train that correctly. And I feel confident that, you know, we then in that addition, last 10 minutes, um, where we went a little bit slower, we were able to like actually hone in on that threshold correctly, because I could hear that the respiratory rate, her ventilation was different. And whereas in the uh, 10 minutes at 640 pace, which resulted for her in a 3.8 millimole reading, um, you know, there was no talking. Now we're talking again at the 710 pace, okay? Now you could, if you wanted, right, you could critique and say, well, that's not really the most valid finding. And I, I don't agree with that. You know, I think that the whole point of using this kind of stuff ultimately needs to be to teach um, athletes, right, whether that's you know, you're whether you're working with somebody else, whether you're just working by yourself, right? So teach yourself, um, be a little autodidactic as an athlete, you know, or, or teaching somebody else. That's how you're going to identify this. So in at, in each of these instances, you know, these athletes well over that threshold. And I would also throw in just a an aside that you'll notice that each of these three people 
their steady state is not two millimoles. So if you're reading or hearing that two millimoles is um, threshold, that's false. Okay. You need to know what is the actual um, millimole value that you are steady at, you know? So our, my, for myself, that's about 1.7, 1.8. For one of my friends, that's about 1.4. And for the third person, you know, that's closer to 1.0. And for my brother Camden, it's actually like 0.8. Okay. And so you see these, these differences and, you know, what that is a reflection of obviously is it's a reflection of mitochondrial utilization. It's not a reflection of an ability to produce lactate because what do you see, right? In each of these instances, oh, you go a little bit faster and all of a sudden you accumulate more lactate, right? The accumulation of lactate is occurring because you don't have the mitochondrial capacity to process that available energy. Okay, you can't reach a conclusion about your ability to be fast, you know, based on your peak lactate accumulation. I understand that people make that argument. I'm saying that I don't agree with that. I think that's an an invalid finding. So our equation for training, if we're going to make an equation for training, right, what equals our total demand, right, the total amount of work we can do, let's call that demand training, you know, if I was going to write that, I would write that capital letter D subtext, uh, sub subscript training. So demand training is a combination of the frequency, the volume, and the intensity. Now I've said that frequency and volume are the most important things in training because that follows the principle, the broader principle of how do we practice to get better. Well, we need to spend a lot of time working within. Um, you know, that zone of proximal development, right? That space where we are using our abilities to their greatest current extent, not we're at the point of failure or collapse. I share an example that I saw on Instagram. Uh, People, right, like to share their stuff. And I think if you share it, it's fair game. Um, But a runner, a high school cross-country runner, popped up on um, Instagram workout, uh, 12 by 400 with a 200 meter sprint after the 12th rep. Uh, They warmed up for one lap and uh, she proceeded to run them in about 80 and lap four, eight and 12. She was, she said that the goal was to hammer it. So she's running about 520 pace and then, um, Every fourth lap, fourth rep, she's it was running, you know, seven, you know, seventy-seven, okay, and then sprinted at two hundred. So, um, and and that was it. And the warm up was, you know, one lap. So, which I'm not necessarily obsessed with warm ups, but like, you know, I don't really think that anybody can really get, you know, loose and comfortable with just a four hundred meter jog. But I guess if you're not fit, then like you wouldn't really know. So they do this workout and the athlete's PR, you know, you look at, you know, their profile, the athlete's PR is 2020 for 5K. Okay. Uh, I don't think that that something's going on, right? I don't think that makes sense that you're at, you're doing this workout and your best is 2020. And to me, like of all of 
the the stereotype, and this will come up again later in the episode with some other examples, but the stereotype of high school cross-country training is to take 5,000 meters and chop it up into some intervals and run it as basically, you know, the coaches like to act like there's paces. The reality is, is everybody knows that you're actually just out there running it as hard as you friggin' can. Okay. And this, I think, is like the ultimate terrible high school cross-country workout. And I I don't say that with any feeling of apology because it's not the athlete's fault. And I think if you're going to be a coach, I think you're responsible for having, you know, some knowledge. And if you can't identify that a athlete who runs 20-20 as their absolute best for 5,000 meters, if you can't figure out that they shouldn't be running 520 pace for 12 400s and then, hey, let's just throw in an extra 200 all out. Like, if you can't figure that out, I think that's negligence, okay? And I do think it's negligence because you have a negative effect on people when you take something that should be fun and rewarding and you ruin it because you don't understand, you know, how they should be training and preparing. And you're taking away their opportunity to be fit, to experience the process of, hey, when I approach something in the right manner, a disciplined, you know, disciplined in a good way, right, to mean just like consistent manner, I can improve, okay? Um, and you're just torturing them. Like, it's not fun to do that when, you know, the maximum velocity that you can hold for 20 minutes is basically you know, not much better than seven minutes a mile. So this intensity issue is significant, okay? Because as much as frequency and volume matter, the intensity ultimately is going to really either empower or cripple your ability to achieve the frequency and the volume of training. And doing these, you know, maximum effort type workouts might feel gratifying, but at the end of the day, nobody feels good about the fact they did special workouts because the purpose of the sport is to race. And, you know, I don't believe that, you know, discussing this stuff on this podcast is going to move the cultural needle on, you know, attitudes among high school cross-country coaches or collegiate cross-country coaches or endurance coaches in general. But I, I think this stuff is real. Um, and I think it's, you know, useful to look at the landscape of what people are actually doing because it helps us understand kind of what are the issues of training that we need to figure out. So those athletes, right? This athlete that actually doesn't know that this is a stupid workout. They don't know that they're wasting their time. You know, they don't know that they're being, you know, you know, hindered, right? The real question is if, because the other way to look at it is to say, well, if the athlete can run 520 pace, for these for 12 400s but they can't go out and run faster than 20 minutes for 5k like there's got to be an issue here that's not working on running 520 pace they've obviously you know can do that okay what do they need to do well they need to figure out how to get the endurance so you can't get the endurance if you don't practice enough and you can't practice enough if the intensity is so high that you're too fatigued so intensity is the least important thing to achieve, like, but it's also the most important factor to understand because it could totally screw you over um, if you're not doing it correctly. And you know, I, I think actually probably right mid to late August is when um, high school cross-country programs across the U.S. are getting going. 
like, and it's a good time to think about this. Like, um, you know, don't train too hard. Don't overdo it in the intensity. Right. But we say that and we can admonish that. And a lot of these same coaches tell people to go, don't go too hard. And then they're facilitating the training environment in which people are going too hard. And, you know, it's because the coach doesn't understand what the intensity is. Right. The coach has a perception and a confirmation bias of how they think it should look and, and how they determine if an athlete is exerting themselves. Now, I have impl- implied, and so I'm now going to also state explicitly that I feel that I can look at an athlete. And I feel that I can identify um, whether or not they're over threshold. And that's because I'm correlating these cues, you know, to also, you know, lactate threshold data. And so identifying the right cues is important. And then teaching the athletes these cues. Like with the third person I did this test with, we ran an additional 10 minutes to identify the cue. And we talked the whole time about that. How does this feel? How is this different? from that rep you did where you were at 3.8 millimoles, okay? So these factors, frequency, volume, intensity, are the three components of fitness training programs in general because they answer the try to answer the questions or they're asking us to focus on the questions of how often, how much, and how hard, okay? And it's this last uh, part, the how hard part, that is the most difficult to figure out Okay, and I think that's also ultimately why people tend to think about that more, right? But it's that's why I've said, and I think it was in the, just the last episode, that like you can't allow your intensity to reach a point at which it's compromising your frequency and your volume. But it's also the case, and I, I see this happen all the time, where people will force out the volume and the frequency and they'll at a overdeveloped intensity. So the, just by setting the right frequency and volume alone doesn't mean that you're going to guarantee that the intensity can't be too high. You can still quite easily have your intensity get too high up there in training, and then that's going to really hamper you. And you know you can be doing the volume and you can be training consistently, and then you still might not be improving, right? And I think at this point we could say that that's overtraining. So this who's on first question is... The intensity piece. How are we understanding what the intensity should be? And I think most of us don't know um, what threshold is. We can't identify it. And the pace that we, and it's interesting too, because when we talk about that four ish millimole value, you know, I was coming in at 5.4, and then my two friends were coming in at 4.5 and 3.8, respectively. What's actually quite interesting. To think about too is that how you know say how many other people would end up coming in basically close to that for uh, millimole level right and we know from shorter distance racing that obviously you can be like you know run for a relatively longish period of time or you can have stamina you can endure at a um, you know higher millimole level than the aerobic threshold right but like in training we're trying to do stuff that's going to allow us to improve. We're not just trying to like execute, you know, stuff that's hard. And that's that what I've said is, you know, the intensity problem. So when we talk about this, we tend to scale training up. And this is the first point here. We tend to scale training up to the intensity of hard impossible. Okay. So the like top end of like, you know, the outer bound 
of how hard it's acceptable to train is at the point of failure, right? What's impossible. So that therefore defines our general idea and belief as a athletics culture um, that the maximum level of training at which training is still beneficial is the training at which the level at which training, excuse me, is no longer even physically possible. And so then number two, the second point is this means that hard and struggle are like equal and we are identifying these as desirable outcomes. Okay. And if we set that as an outer boundary, it means it's acceptable to get to that point. And it also implies that if it's the boundary, then that space must be explored in training. And I completely disagree. I don't think there's really any point to go to that. Um, you know, in endurance sports, you're not trying to achieve muscular hypertrophy and you're not trying to increase singular one muscular contractional uh, force. That's not really the performance goal. Okay. So the idea that you need to take it to absolute failure is pointless, you know, and I get that people like to explore their limits and there's a lot of tradition of doing workouts that take people to the point of failure. And what happens after you do those workouts on a team is the top runner, you know, or if there's a top couple runners who are very close, those people at that absolute top level, they may go out and they may still race okay. And everybody else is going to go out and absolutely bomb. And then the coach is going to interpret that rather than take responsibility for being a, a bad coach and making a poor decision, you know, about what the training workouts should be, um, the training or the workouts, excuse me, should be, they blame it on the athletes. And they say, well, you lack willpower. These guys have willpower. That's why they're the best. You guys didn't know. And you guys didn't recover the right way, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so this athlete blaming, you know, hey, you know, coach, you blame the athletes, then you're still a good coach, et cetera, et cetera, which is sad because you're actually a bad coach. Like you're a good coach when you recognize like what you're actually responsible for, which is that the athletes are looking to you to teach them how training should feel. Now, why do those top athletes maybe recover from the, super glorious, you know, culminating workout of the season. Because for them, they had the lowest millimole because they were the fittest. Everybody else, you destroyed them, okay, by asking them to train that hard, right? We take hard and struggle to be desirable. It doesn't lead to benefit. You know, um, but we often are failing to ask, like, a real question of, like, what does hard really mean? Okay, what should that actually mean, right? And I've suggested that hard means to the point of failure. But I think, you know, in endurance sports training, like it's kind of hard, it's kind of like the F-bomb of endurance sports. And by that, I mean that like, it's a word that's used all the time with conflicting or contrasting meanings, right? That like sometimes um, hard is used to mean something that is actually right at our level of challenge, peak challenge and engagement where we like actually were executing um, within the outer boundary of competence. And I think sometimes hard is like literally totally impossible. I think sometimes hard means something that defied our expectations. I think sometimes hard is used to like Oh, look at them. They're running hard. That's a compliment. Look at them. They're running hard. That's an insult. So like, but we take simple terms that have a multitude of meanings. And then we throw that language out there and we say, okay, this should be hard. 
but that means different things to different people. It's not good enough to use it. Hard is not really a descriptor, okay? Um, Because it means too many different things. And hard, when you tell athletes that something's hard, it basically means that there is no limit to what you do. There is no pacing. Because hard, you know, taken to the extreme, is doing the extreme. It's getting to the point of absolute physical implosion, right? And the problem is, too, is, is coaches think that if somebody blows themselves up, you should praise that, you should positively reinforce that. And that should be criticized. That should be given constructive criticism. It's not good for people to be doing that. And as a coach, if you don't address that, you're failing in their responsibility. So these components um, for demand of training, training demand, uh, the components, frequency, volume, and intensity, um, are then the basic design components in training plans. And periodization is a big phenomena in endurance sports planning. I know that periodization is also prevalent for people who do strength training, but periodization has sort of been this, you know, concept of like, well, you're, you know, one of these things that you show that you're a higher level runner is you're like, I do more sophisticated, confusing training practices. I I'm periodized, you know, I'm being periodized now. And um, I think that this is another term that has a diversity of meanings. And I think it has a diversity of implications in terms of like, what does intensity really mean here? So I want to talk about a couple different concepts of the way in which periodization can be used and where there's a need in here to really like articulate the cues of how training should feel and how I don't think that this is really present and reflected in this stuff. And I think, you know, as conclusion for this consideration of periodization, the conclusion is going to be that, uh, you know, this is reflecting, you know, a failure of training theory, if you will, that like we're not designing training in a way that's helpful. If we're not thinking about what are the athletes learning and we're not thinking about how are the athletes going to be able to execute the intensity correctly. So I think that, you know, with periodization, what we're really looking at in a general sense is that there are these very aesthetically pleasing and sort of like geometrically reasoned models. They like to get put together in like infographics and charts that are, you know, can be like um, very interesting or compelling to look at because they suggest, you know, a lot of sexy training secrets that you don't understand. And, you know, it sort of tantalizes us with the possibility of what could I do if I knew how to apply periodization? And, you know, it, it draws us in, right? It's a seductive thing. Um, so one definition of periodization um, is to looking at phases of training and that this is a practices-focused concept. So this is looking at how um, there's a changing emphasis in the training practices applied between this, whenever somebody initiates their training, the start date of training, and then the end date, whatever that ultimate goal competition or series of competitions is going to be. And there are different models that have resulted from this. Um, you know, part of this is because um, of the legitimacy of these different strategies. But we also then see subsequently people feeling that, oh, well, you know, I can improve on this or why is it designed like this? And then it's sort of becoming this like, Rubik's cube thing where people are just sort of twisting it around because they can, right? But the reality is the Rubik's cube is only solved 
when you know you have solid colors on each of the panels you know but people are twisting it around and they're basically saying well what if you have the colors mixed up like this is this also a solution to the rubik's cube and so the logic starts to then move away from the original concept and um you know people are then sort of like tinkering with the training model and the geometry um and the aesthetics of that model rather than you know focusing on okay the athlete, what do we want to improve? How are you improving? The most important question to ask is, okay, are you actually training at the right intensity? Because if you're training at the right intensity, the frequency and volume is A, possible, and B, effective. Okay, but if you train too hard, right, here we are using the dreadful word, confusing word, hard. If you're training and the intensity is, you might be doing the frequency and the volume. If the intensity is too high, you're not going to improve. So people look at this, and then if we start to assume that there's some theoretical law, like a Newtonian law, discovered by periodization, now we're not thinking about the athlete anymore. So, and this kind of feeds into the second way we can think about periodization. And the second way that periodization is is sort of utilized or focused on is by applying uh, the concept of trying to achieve progressive overload and idealized stimulus. And I think this is kind of a load acclimation focused uh, periodization. And these aren't different periodized models. I'm saying that these are a, a broader concept, broader consideration of this is these are different philosophies, if you will, um, or paradigms of periodization use in considering training. And so here, uh, periodization more specifically, the notion is that you're finding the perfect model of training stimulus laid out over time and, and that the coach or coaches work to lay out the exact plan over time of what that should look like. And they're doing this around progressive overload, other principles like this, you know, um, VT1, VT2, um, VT1, excuse me, velocity threshold, I mean to say lactate threshold one, lactate threshold two, VO2 max, right? And they're putting these in and they're saying these should be in these golden ratios, et cetera, et cetera. At Bates College, we had these classrooms with these beautiful chalkboards. Um, and, right, there were the ones where you could slide them up and there would be other chalkboards, un chalkboards underneath. And uh, after hours in the evening, I would sometimes go into some of the classrooms if they were unlocked and nobody was in there. And um, one of my activities is sometimes, you know, I would like write out these big periodized models and chalk on the chalkboard. And I think it was for me satisfying and cathartic as somebody who was struggling to feel like training was working to sort of be like, well, you know, I can sort of daydream that, well, if only I could be doing this, then Maybe this would solve the problems, but you know I can't because I'm not allowed to do anything beyond what's being presented, and I, and I know that I'm not improving in in this environment. Um, so I guess that was you know my little uh, therapy hour <laughs> every once in a while, um, you know, where I'd read some training book and I'd kind of get all jazzed up and I'd be like, oh, what would this look like for me? And I'd like to draw it out. But like the reality is that there's nothing about that that was actually designing training. It's just sort of that aesthetic of control, right? As I was reading about these concepts and then I was sort of mapped, oh, well, what if it was distributed like this? 
Um, but I was giving no thought to like, what was the intensity? What was it right for me? Uh, right. I was just thinking, oh, if only blank, blank and blank. Right. So there's sort of a pipe dreaming aspect to this, right. Of like, it, yeah, it would be cool if you could design it like you design a house, but you're not dealing with, you know, the construction of, um, you know, inanimate materials, you know, into a structure, right. We're talking about people and, you know, this kind of thing historically, by the way, I think we can also, you know, something that we can associate with the rise of sporting institutions. So like, you know, Eastern Bloc stuff, Soviet periodization, you know, this sort of scientific, you know, mass production model of sport, model mass production of athletes model in the model of sport. And we also see this now in high performance um, institutions are places you go to actually get bad training uh, because you just have this idea of like, oh, here are our generic things and you are going to come in and we're going to apply these to you. And if they don't work, it's because you're not good enough, right? When really it's, you know, and that's the belief that most people aren't good athletes. But if you say most people are good athletes, well, then that means I think you got to think differently about whether or not the recommendations that are coming out of these institutions are actually effective. And, you know, understanding these sort of esoteric type models, I think, becomes really appealing, you know, because there's this sort of sense of intellectualism or maybe pseudo intellectualism to imagining, you know, how these things fit together. Um, but I also think it's like pretty pointless at the same time. And because, you know, we want to recognize that where do these ideas of what the periodization of the progression should come from? What's the point of origin historically? Well, at some point it was derived from the habits of what previous athletes did. And that was a routine or a pattern that they did taking that as law and then, you know, adding to that pattern, whatever the armchair athlete, i.e. the coach, thinks would be additionally beneficial. And the coach is sometimes in a terrible position to do that because the coach loves the idea of challenging things. And, you know, that's what's tricky is we know that there's growth in response to challenge. But when a person is challenged appropriately, they shouldn't look like they're struggling. Most coaches want to see you struggle and suffer because that's a big part of sports culture, but also our cultural belief in general is that the more that if you're like really break you down by torturing you, then you're going to build back up as something greater. That's not what it should look like. You need to see athletes executing with competence and mastery and overreaching, you know, people generically say going to the well, we need to be more specific than that. Exceeding the level of proficiency in training isn't good. And the athlete needs to be equipped to understand that. And the coach's responsibility is to teach athletes to know that. So let's go to our third way of thinking about periodization here, which is a, a transition from this concept of the habits of other athletes forming the basis of these, you know, idealized periodization models, which is periodization is reverse engineering. Um, periodization isn't an, is, is, excuse me, um, is an assessment of what has happened. It's not really ultimately the intervention. Periodization is what we do to learn about training practices, but we can't then say, this is the schedule, do it. And there's a long tradition of people saying, give me the schedule, give me the workouts, because that's what we learn is the right question to ask. What are the workouts? What's the schedule? How fast? 
right? And you just give us the answers, then I'll go out, I'll apply my will, my willpower, and if I have what it takes, I'll get it done. Um, and and, I, and we see that, like, brain training is a pop become a popular thing. I don't know how popular that is in the moment, but in the last few years, you know, the idea of training the brain and unlocking this brain's ability, blah, 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 you know, which is not really supported by neuroscience um, in terms of this idea that, oh, there's all, like, this thing that we only use 10% of our brain, that's false. Okay, so we don't have like all of this available brain that's not allowing us to do X, Y, and Z. Um, you know, if you read that uh, book Endure by, I think, I want to say Tim, Alex Hutchinson. Yeah, I think it was Alex Hutchinson. You know, that sort of gets that some of this stuff, this idea of the, the will and the willpower is this like next great frontier. It's a really enjoyable book. I don't agree with the overall you know, conclusion that's sort of being implied there. Um, so like when we look at this concept of the training schedule and the periodization, you know, the different way to look at it is, is and I think this is the best way to use periodization is to say that um, the output is to consider that periodized plans are the consequence of people assigning training and then having variability in training because add, adding challenging stress means there's going to be some measure of adjustment and variability as you go. And the, this is the correct way to understand periodization because, you know, maybe athlete A gets bored with training sometimes. So to ensure their engagement over the long term, in some short-term instances, athlete A has to maybe reduce their training demand in order to maintain engagement overall. Because if they just may try to push through that high level of training without respite, they'll break down in terms of loss of interest and then they won't get anywhere. And so then you're going to have this training pattern or process at the end where you're going to see different things happening at different times. Okay, so then if you take that and you derive some periodization truisms from it and then you use that to design for another athlete – well, for athlete B, that's not going to match their level of engagement. You might be taking them out of engagement when they're still into it, and you might be pushing them through it when they're bored. And like really, um, you know, we want to recognize that a lot of the variability in a training process that we call periodization um, in real practice, that's just like, you know, the application of opportunity cost. Right, where these short term changes, you know, lead to higher training benefits in the long term because it, it's trade off. Sometimes you, you know, you let go of a little bit of something else that could be done physically, but the athlete is not just a physical entity, it's not a machine, it's they are a person, right? And so there's other factors there. And it, it's not a lack of willpower to like get bored and want to do different kinds of things uh, in training. That's normal, and it's good. It's also beneficial to have some variety, anyway. So, here we recognize now that these models of training are really like not training at all, right? At best, periodized models and diagrams are a way to share the concept of like how like progression can occur with training. But you can't if you just take that and you say, "I'm going to enact this." This is different. And I think it's interesting that one of the original ideas of periodization in endurance sports is Arthur Lydiard, but Arthur Lydiard writes these books where he's sort of describing 
like how this stuff should feel and conceptually, like how should you be, you know, what's, what's the paradigm, the decision-making paradigm. It's not like, oh yeah, here's this diagram. Okay, go do it. But, you know, training literature for the general public um, has certainly moved more and more towards this like algorithmic thing. And also has, as has been discussed before on the podcast, we see this too with like wearables, I guess is what we're calling them right now. But this idea that these devices and like apps can tell you what to do. Like uh, you want some, here's a little bit of money saving advice. Don't buy the Gatorade hydration patches. It's a literal waste of money. It's just drawing you in with this idea of like, oh, here's all this information I don't understand. This must be really helpful. You drink water when you're thirsty, you're good. So, you know, treating athletes though as abstract entities, um, you know, of of machine-like qualities of failing of training strategy, okay? Like the human brain, right, are, and the consciousness that resides there and the responsiveness of that consciousness to competing stimuli that would also consume the time and energy that would be in a conflict with the production of the demand of training through the use of frequency, volume, and intensity is very real and of potentially problematic consideration and periodization doesn't do that, okay? I know that there's an argument that, well, actually the opportunity cost of periodization is that you're switching from blank to blank, um, but there's also this like irons in the fire idea where coaches talk about, um, you know, professional elite coaches talk about how, well, you got to keep the athletes in touch with all of these things and you're, you're juggling all this stuff in the air. And it's like, really, we just, I think we, I think we need to accept that we're making an opportunity cost decision that if we're going to do, when we make a change, we're not main, we, we're, we're letting go of something else. Okay. To some extent. Um, and, and that's not necessarily bad, but it it's true. So these models, I think are something that we really have to maybe move away from. Okay. And that these models of periodization, these training schedules, this idea that training is something that's calculated, um, that your Garmin watch can know you and how you should train, et cetera, et cetera. I think that that's a highly questionable, limited thing. And I think that the core issue that really needs to be addressed here is how do we know how hard we should be training? And I circle back to my opening point, we don't know. We don't know how to identify threshold and all endurance athletes should be able to automatically start running at threshold. Like that shouldn't even be an issue. It should be as simple as tying your shoes. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Podcats Run podcast. You can check us out on Instagram at Podcats Run. We're going to have another segment of this episode where we're going to talk about the coach and the athlete and understanding training cues. So, um, you know, stay tuned in for when we release that because I will talk more about how do we learn to identify this and then when we identify it, how do we then train in accordance with that? What does that open the door for us to be able to do differently? 
Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.